Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today I'm very honored to have as my special guest recording artist Chris Tate, best known as singer-guitarist of the successful 80s band Chalk Circle. Chalk Circle really started as a high school band. Like um, yeah. Brad and I, our, our bass player, uh, went to high school together. And then um, there weren't any drummers in our, our high school, and we had a friend um, tell us about a drummer in Bowmanville, another small small town in, in, near us, yeah. and uh, Derek and... That was it. We sort of met and was like, oh, okay, we have a band. So well, that's how it started. It was pretty, um, yeah. Yeah. Back back in the day when it was still cool to be in a band, it was the coolest thing going, right? You're either a jock or you're in a band. And, yeah. And that's uh, that's what the cool people did. I think it's probably still pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Not quite a, like it was, but yes, I think that's, that, that's probably right. Yeah. So, but then, I mean, lots of bands. I mean, I went to high school. There was hundreds of kids that played in bands and stuff like how did you how did you sort of move from that to the next step and saying hey why don't we try to do something here we um i think we, you know one of the things that we were we were really lucky was it was right around the time when there's a lot of like post-punk sort of you know really exciting music coming out of the uk and, um primarily and the other thing we actually were starting to to hear a lot about is was the music scene in Toronto, which was really exciting at the time as well. Um, we barely had access to that. Uh, we were about an hour our, where where I grew up was about an hour east of Toronto, and we didn't really have access to it until um, a radio station called CFNY was suddenly broadcast from the CN Tower, and we had access to it. So all of this music um, was suddenly available, and my taste changed dramatically from Let Rush and Led Zeppelin to Stiff Little Fingers and the jam and all of this stuff that was happening at the UK and uh, even some mm-hmm. local Toronto bands, as I mentioned. But the the really amazing thing about that time was if you wanted to write songs, you could write songs. You were allowed to. You didn't have to be a master, you know, guitar player or the most incredible singer in the world. You could express yourself by just writing. So mm-hmm. we did. We were really inspired by that. So we were writing songs. Like when I was in grade 10, we were we were writing songs and we were playing gigs in our, you know, our high school. We opened up for Gatto, I think. Yes. Gatto oh, cool. at our high school. <laughs> and, yeah. and it wasn't a set of cover tunes. It was a set of our original songs. So yeah. by the time, and so, you know, grade 11 or 12 came around, we were just like, yeah, we're, we're a band. We're going to just okay. move to the city and be a band. So we, we didn't. Really so what kind it. of music was it? Angst driven sort of, um, punkish kind of stuff. Or what I, I was mentioned it? Stiff Little Fingers. It was sort of like Stiff Little Fingers and the Ramones and the Skids. Mm. Maybe I started to listen to bands like that. So my guitar had like you know a delay pedal on it, but it was really fast. Like yeah, right. Yeah, really fast and lots of you know down strum down strumming on my guitar. Not a lot of finesse, but it was it was pretty exciting actually. We we did a five song. EP cassette EP over a weekend at Quest Recording Studios. I think we recorded it on four track because um, mm. it was cheaper, and that mm. was our that was our first recording. And yeah, we just went from there. 
Well, yeah, because I always wonder about that. You know, some some bands have a plan. You know, we're going to do this and this and this, and other bands it just sort of evolves or or it's an accident to me in some cases, right? In your case, it sounds like it kind of evolved. We all just sort of clicked, and we were all equally very passionate about music. Like I I think back now at how hard we worked. Of course, it didn't feel like work, but I, we rehearsed every day. Mm. I spent hours in my, you know, basement with my guitar trying to figure out how to play guitar, you know, songs. And it was sort of hyper-focused. Even when we, yeah. we sort of finally end, all ended up in Toronto, we, we had a rehearsal space and we would literally go there every day and rehearse and write songs. Yeah. That's what we did. It was like a full-time job. And, and I think we did it very naively. We didn't know any better and we loved it. So, you know, that was yeah. our, our work ethic, but yeah, there was no plan. It was just, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to go to Toronto and we wanted to open up for all of these bands that we'd heard about and we wanted to blow them off the stage. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that yeah, well, was the only thing we thought yeah. about. Yeah. So you guys were labeled as alt rock, which I guess from, from your beginnings and what you described there was probably, a, you know, I guess that was accurate. But I, when I listen to your music, it, it, it's, I don't want to say new wave, but it certainly sounds like you know, somewhat like Thompson Twins or Duran Duran. It's got the more polished, especially the later stuff, is more polished kind of new wave-ish rather than alt-rock. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I'm would. i sure any musician or writer would say the same, respond the same way. I, I don't understand either of the references. Um, new wave, to me, was sort of a description of a new wave of artists coming out of the UK at the time. Mm-hmm. This new wave of this post-punk sort of new romantic. No, it wasn't even new romantic stuff that was earlier, I guess. But all of the artists coming out were so diverse and so unique. And even, you know, American artists, like you look at bands like Talking Heads and bands like mm-hmm. Echo and the Bunnymen, but bands like Thompson Twins, like you mentioned, like they're all cr- incredibly different. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the th- one of the things that sort of ended up happening to us by our third record is the record's pretty schizophrenic when I listen to it now. We have like yeah. this kind of crazy ambient duets with Jane Sibbery and then there's like kind of this weird kind of angular punk rock tune and it's sort of all over the place. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, you know, I guess if we're going to be called something, call it alt something then we don't have to just play rock yeah. or just play you know pop music so yeah good yeah. point i mean and the the record labels have to say well what are they like okay well, they're not adult oriented rock they're not i guess they're alt rock or they're you know new wave but the, you're right like new wave was a really broad term you hear that all the time and you kind of go well what is that yeah like, and i, mean, I, I think, think a lot, I think it conjures up like really for some people and a lot of people it probably conjures up that really polished like trying to think of a band now um well duran duran would be in my mind was was a yeah or even i'm thinking even you know less guitar um but then you look at a band like tears for fears and you're sort of like well they're just like an incredibly prolific like song you know very song centered like pop rock band like or even like um a band everyone was crazy excited about at the time especially because of their production chops was talk talk like there's a band that you know i don't know what that is except just really great interesting sort of progressive pop rock kind of stuff yeah and i guess from a musician's perspective like 
we don't really care, right? I mean, you're writing songs that you think are, are good songs. You're producing them the best you can. Whatever label, you cut it, wrap it, and freeze it however you like. I don't know. They want to sell it, but you're just creating stuff that you think is cool in the genre that you like. Yeah, you just you just write, and you're going to change. And as you grow musically, like I was probably much more singular in in my influences, you know, when I was younger, like you know, eighteen or nineteen. And you know, over the the next three to five years, my tastes changed dramatically, and and singer songwriters became for me personally much more interesting to listen to, and and I remember suddenly having this massive Bowie phase, you know, and he was sort of be time before my time, a lot of his, his, you know, early stuff. Um, so I remember that Renaissance and all of a sudden, suddenly falling in love with Elvis Costello's music where I I was more, you know, art rock kind of, you know, before that. And, And, uh, and then you, you sort of hear that your music changes, your songwriting changes. But from a musician's perspective, that's a great thing. Great. I think it's inevitable. Hopefully it's inevitable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's no downside to that, except maybe the record companies. But uh, yeah, I think the downside is people, you know, people certainly start to expect what they heard before. And artists over the years have always, you know, the ones I think the ones that sort of survived musically are the ones that have continually challenged themselves and challenged the audience. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Jean-Marc, best known as lead singer for the successful 80s band, The Box. Thanks for joining me today, Jean-Marc. Thanks, How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing fine. You came out of the music scene in Montreal, which was pretty vibrant in the 70s. I guess you grew up at a real special time. It was a special time, especially because of the fact that Quebec being French, we had a lot of influence from France, which was mm. thriving in the 70s. So our musical culture was a mix of whatever came from the U.S., Great Britain, and France. And, oh, that, nice. and that made a big difference because uh, French, the French people have a very specific way of writing music, just as the British do. Uh, hmm. So, uh, yeah, all of that was a, a great influence on me. I realized that I could actually write my own songs. And that's when yeah. I stopped playing, oddly enough. Because, huh. yeah, because I find that when you write a song with an, an instrument in your hands, you have a tendency to repeat yourself by automatism. Your hands ten, tend to land at the same places all the time. And I mm. realized that it was a lot easier for me to just jump in the car, hit any highway, and drive a, around 100 kilometers per hour with the window just slightly open so that it produces a white noise, you know, a shh type yep. thing. Yep. And then you can hear everything very clearly in your head. And that's the way that I, um, my preferred way of writing music is always in the car. Uh, my musical diet included progressive rock. And that was a great influence when I started writing music for the box. A good example of that is the song L'Affaire du Moutier. Mm. English version is, is called Say to Me. It's a murder yeah. story, so it tells a story. And not only that, but it, it, it incorporates um, bits of exchanges between the various actors of the song as if you were listening to the soundtrack of the movie. Now, the right. idea, okay, it's a four-minute song. It's not an 18 or 20-minute song. It's a four-minute song that was designed to go on the radio, but at the same time, it was very he- heavily influenced by the progressive rockers of the 70s who told stories, you know. You played with your brother. How was that? Uh, <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun, actually, because as kids, we couldn't uh, bear each other. 
he was a little bit yeah. older than me and he was a, 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 a constant bully to me. Uh, yeah. And that is actually what brought us together. So uh, I'm very oh. thankful for that too. And he wrote a lot of music too. And although our tastes yeah. were very different, uh, it, it, there was a way to incorporate what he did with the box. And we have, uh, for example, okay. a single that we wrote called My Dreams of You and released on the second album was one of his songs. Uh, okay. Yeah. I played with my brother for a few years, but I was the older brother and I kind of had older brother syndrome is what I call it. Were you I, the bully? I <laughs> well, I just, you know, you're, you're the older brother, you're intense, you're pushy, you're, you're trying to do what you need to do to make what you need to make. And, and you just end up being a bit pushy and, and just being that way. And I, and you know, I reflect on it later and go, yeah, you have to have a leader. And, and with you, I guess it was your older brother. That's what happened with John Fogarty too, because his older brother was in the band, right? But he sort of took the lead. So there's always a dynamic there well, right, yeah. that I just wanted to ask. Especially from the fact that the band was already there when my brother joined. He joined a little okay. bit later uh, because yeah. I was playing keyboards with, uh, with, with the box before while singing. And he thought, you know what? Forget about the being behind a counter like that all the time. Just go up there, take care of the people. I'll take care of the keyboards back here. And that's how it happened. So then you did the, the, the debut album was 1984. And uh, one thing that struck me about that is that the production is really good. Like usually when a band puts out a first album, it's, you know, the production's okay. They haven't got the, the sort of polish yet and stuff. But with your, like, must I always remember and stuff, it, excellent like it's, the production is just great i'm i'm just i'm the last person to whom uh you can ask about this because i have so little uh, objectivity towards it all uh, that to me i i know that it sounded original that's for sure it didn't sound like anybody else now was it because we didn't know what we were doing maybe there was a part of that um i i didn't know how to sing before that i started singing with the box and I suppose that although everybody says that my, the sound of my voice is special, I must add to that that when you don't know what you're doing while singing, you're forced to, uh, to sound different. I mean, because you're, you don't apply any rules. And that was clearly my case. The real success of the band came through one particular lady who worked at Alert Records called Lisa Bitnew, which was later to become president of BMG, president of um, uh, Sony. And okay. uh, her, uh, I mean, the telephone was an extension of her arm. And she, w she talked about Tim Mitchell and us and, and further artists that they signed later as if it was the, the best thing on earth. I mean, uh, she was just yeah. talking about us relentlessly. She booked me interviews everywhere. Uh, when a label does the proper job on an artist, it's going to work. You expect it yeah. to work. You don't expect it to fail. And, uh, and that comes with a lot of arrogance on your part. But hey. I mean, if a record label picks you up and spends fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars on you, uh, they have something to lose, so they better do a good job of it, and uh, and you have to deliver. Yeah, and you also did a video, which they obviously would have put the money up for. So you did a concept video, like a sort of a theme, well, a thematic video, and that looks like it cost a few dollars too. Uh, yeah, but to me, it was a disaster. I didn't like that video at all, and then I told mm. the record company, from now on, I'm going to do the videos. If I ask, no. if we're going to throw twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars out the window, next time I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. And then I did the video for L'Affaire du Moutier, uh, Say to Me, and yeah. we had a gas doing that. It was just extraordinary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was looking at your credits, and you did get some director credits yeah. for some of those, yeah. right? Yeah. And which is smart because you know you were right in the middle of the video time, like eighty-five. 
84, 85, you had to have a video with the hit song oh, yeah. if you were going to get a hit we, song. We, right? we were born with the video industry. Yeah. And so, but then some of those videos, when you look back on them, you know, you make a good point because some of them, the concept videos and doesn't seem. Well, that's the reason why I decided to do them myself. And then we, what well, we would do yeah. is get together the entire band and brainstorm about an idea. And then we'd yeah. just go out and do it. And we would hire people to do the cameras and all that, of course, because we didn't know the yeah. first thing about that. But yeah, the entire scenario was completely set up. We knew exactly what we were going to do. And then I would take yeah. out, uh, go on, on, on a, uh, what do you call it, um, to just figure out where and, and uh, what shots we we're going to do and where and, and buy all the accessories and all that, that I would do myself. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, I would hire a, an editor and just edit the whole thing and bingo. One thing about the box that, w- that was really cool that every band wants is you had that really distinct sound. You, you didn't overload the sound like you didn't you didn't fill every track up and try to fill every hole like it's very sparse in some spots well but it's, yeah it's cool we had a policy and that was to uh just go and record whatever it is that we were able to play live in other mm-hmm. words we didn't do overdubs if we could play a song uh just the five of us together keyboards guitars bass and vocals uh, and just transpose that to the studio and record that and nothing else. Maybe a little bit of doubling on the vocals, that sort of thing, a harmony or two, but not much more than that. And it's funny because we had a rehearsal space uh, with other bands rehearsing in, in different uh, rooms. And the other bands would come to us and say, man, you sound exactly like the record when you play live. And I said, yeah, well, we do it on purpose. Because if there's something I didn't like, uh, the, the few shows that I've seen, uh, was to have this song clearly in my head from a, a band, whatever the band might be, and then you'd go see them live, and it's completely different. Well, yeah, I didn't like that yeah. very much, so I, I made it a point to make sure that whenever we presented ourselves to the public, it would it would be with something as close as possible to to what we had recorded. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that because I did notice that, and and, and it doesn't need to be filled up. It's everything there is is great, and as long as you got clean, good sounds, and the band's playing as a unit, because as you say, like a lot of those bands, those songs were studio creations yep. to a large extent. Absolutely, right? yeah. So they go in and they come out with something that that doesn't really reflect what the band actually sounds like. So you guys nailed that great. And again, the production with the the sparse sort of sounds and the production came across perfectly. I think it's just great. Thank you. So the French English debate, I have to ask you about that. Did you, did you go back and forth on that? I mean, obviously if you're going to make, try to make it in the bigger market, you have to do English, but, but you had lots of French uh, music and you must've, you were influenced by that and grew up obviously speaking French and you must have played lots of French songs. How did you sort that out? Was there a discussion about that? No, there wasn't any discussion about it for, for again, uh, rooted in the men without hats experience. When, uh, when the hats hit the, hit the world with the safety dance, uh, the record company expected us to do the same thing. And it wasn't going to happen if we sang in any other language than English. So that was okay. out of the question. The other thing is, I've always spoken English. It's it's been part of my life. Although I have a big French accent when I speak, it's been part yep. of my life uh, from when I was a kid. And so, if I didn't have it around, maybe it would have been a bit of a phony business for me to sing in English when I don't even speak it. Right. But yep. and then my mom. Okay, my mom came to me one day and said, look, if you're uh, 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 stupid enough, (laughs) let's put it this way, if you're stupid enough to think you're going to earn a living 
uh, with music, you might as well put all the tools in your box, and, and English is one of them. So yeah, go ahead and use yeah. it. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, recording artist Andy Curran, perhaps best known as singer-bassist of the successful 80s band Coney Hatch. So thanks for joining me today, Andy. How are you? Dan, I'm uh, I'm very good, thank you. And I like how you've sort of framed that up as a retro artist. I'm a retro <laughs> artist now, but I guess you know um, I got some of the war wounds to prove it, and some uh, a few gray hairs and a, a couple of wrinkles here and there. But um, they're all badges of honor. I owe a lot to to my parents and my grandparents and my my elder brothers and sisters for exposing me to that music at a very early age. And I and I joke with people, Dan, and I tell them that. The first instrument I played was tennis racket because we used to um, play. We used to have a, a little band. My brothers and I and my sisters would put on go-go boots and put the the, the their seven-inch records, whether it was the Gumbies or, or you know, sorry, yeah. the Monkeys or something like that. And we we pretend that we were playing um, guitar <laughs> on on tennis racket. So I was I was a, a pretty damn good tennis racket. Yes, guitar there player. you go. I think the turning point for me, my eldest sister was dating this guy and he, his name is John and he looked like um, Rod Stewart. He had the spiky hair and the long hair and, and he knew that I loved music and he was always, he turned me on to James Gang and said, you know, Allman Brothers and telling me what I, you know, some cool bands I should listen to, even Bob Marley, because um, he had relatives in Jamaica. But one of my birthdays, he showed up with a bass guitar as a present oh. and he said, um, I know you love music and, um, here's, here's a present for you. Uh, I'm giving it to you as a gift and under the under understanding in the agreement that you will never sell this yeah. promise me you will never sell this thing. Right. And it was a Hofner Beetle bass, the same oh, kind wow. that Paul McCartney used. I still have that bass to this day, Dan. I, I kept true on my promise. It's one of my um, prized possessions. So that was a pivotal point for me. Certainly the biggest change in my career was the day that Pai Dubois, who was writing lyrics for Max Webster, came to see Coney Hatch at um, the Gasworks. And I saw him sitting at a table writing um, on a pad. And I actually thought that he was some guy doing a review of Coney Hatch. Okay. And I went over and I, I introduced myself to him. And I said, are you from a local newspaper? I was dreaming that maybe the Toronto yeah. Star were I'd take <laughs> a look at us or something, right? And he said, no, um, my name's Pai Dubois. I'm, I'm the lyricist for Max Webster, who I was well aware of. Oh, and of I course, was like, oh yeah. my God. I was like, well, what are you doing here? And, and he said, oh, I'd like to go out and see bands. He said, you know, I think Kim Mitchell would really like you guys um kim had just left max webster and i'm gonna tell him about you guys i think he would really dig you and i'm gonna bring him down and that was the beginning if it wasn't for pie and kim i wouldn't be even on this podcast talking yeah. to you those that those two guys came in and specifically kim swooped in said i'm gonna come in and do a demo with you guys i'll help you shop it we did like a four three or four song demo my we wrote a promissory note to my father who helped us pay for the demo and the recording mm -hmm. time kim didn't charge any money and Kim took us into a studio and beat the crap out of us and taught us how, yeah. how to how to do a lot of stuff that we didn't know how to do. And not only did he do that, Dan, but he started taking the tapes around to labels and managers for us. And and that's how we ended up work um, oh, getting cool. signed to Anthem Records and Ray Daniels. But we had an yeah. offer from from Dean Cameron at, at EMI Records at the same time because he Kim was out there playing it for a variety of um, labels yeah. and managers. Huh. So. 
my God, if we hadn't had that, I guarantee you, I could, I, my, my path in life could have been completely different. And some of my friends who are super gifted musicians who now just do it on a, on a hobby end, they never ever got that opportunity yeah. that I got where somebody can come in and change your yeah. life overnight. Looking at your timeline, I mean, things happened for you pretty quick, right? I mean, you did the rehearsals, you got the record deal, you got the album, you know, then you're on tour opening for Iron Maiden. I mean, that must have been like an alternate reality sort of in a very short period of time. It was like a rocket ride. Yeah. And I can't believe, you know, at, at the time I was just, um, if you think of when Dorothy's house gets picked up by the hurricane and you just yeah. get sucked into <laughs> it, that's kind of what happened to us, right? Yeah. So that's... next thing you know, we go from playing like the, the gas works or the Knob Hill and we're told, hey, by the way, you just got you know, 30 shows open for Judas Priest across Canada and, wow. and the USA. And it's just like, wait a second here, man. Yeah. Like, how did this happen? And, and so in preparation to get ready to be in front of 12,000, you know, to 18,000 people, Ray Daniels, our manager, said, well, I'm going to book you guys on a little mini tour with, with a group called Trooper, which you would know because they're of from out course, west. Of course, yeah, I, I know and, that. And they're playing little hockey arenas um, in northern Ontario, some of the cottage country things. So we we started easing in by playing sort of what I would call 500 to 1,000 seater um, hockey arenas opening up for Trooper in preparation for going on this tour with Judas Priest. Hmm. And then we got one really big show in Toronto where we opened up for Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick at at, um, at the Grandstand, CNA Grandstand. But for me, again, man, like mass, go back to the, what I was telling you about when I was growing up listening to all those bands and seeing Edgar Winter and stuff. So I had posters all over my wall as a teenager. <laughs> and next thing I know, I'm I'm meeting these guys and yeah. we're on tour with them. Like Cheap Trick is one of my all-time favorite bands. So I'm like, what is going on here? Like half the time I was pinching myself just going, yeah. I can't believe that we're on the road with these guys. But what a rocket ride it was. And when, for anybody listening, and you would understand this, when you have a manager at the level of Ray Daniels who had been managing Rush for all those years and he and he knew everybody. He instantly got us a US record deal. Yeah. Um, we got an agent that was a booking agent at Rush. So all of a sudden you get these opportunities where you're being invited out on tour. And we MTV was was it was interesting because the MTV part of it uh, is what put us on the radar. They were so new that they didn't have many videos so we were in that first couple years when mtv started and they would literally play anything that that you sent them right so yeah. so devil's deck and and first time for everything the two singles off those big records got us yeah. a boatload of airplay on mtv which put us on on the radar of these other bands and that's how we got the judas priest tour and the iron maiden tour um you know, subsequently, um, there was days off in between where we would play one-offs. So we opened up for Edgar Winter and Peter Frampton, um, yeah. we Frank Marino and Mahogany cool. Rush, and, and and whatever. The Tubes was another one, and Triumph, and um, God Crocus, except like the list goes on and on about yeah. these these A-level international acts. And I, I almost think that we sort of fit this bill as as a good opener for these bands because mm. we were part hard, hard rock, but we did have some radio success. But um, going back to your comment, Dan, it was a rocket ride. Uh -huh. um, 82 to 85 for me is a blur. A blur. We yeah. were 
I've been on the roof for 18 months of those years, and we played everywhere. And in between those tours, we would come home and start to play bigger venues uh, for Coney Hatch headlining. So yeah. that was that was pretty exciting that we could fill like a 1,500 or 2,000 seater on our own after that, you know? We're a four-piece band, but we traveled with like an eight-member road crew. God no, knows right. <laughs> why we were doing that. We had, you know, we had our own monitor man, light man, road manager, yeah. guitar techs, drum tech. And before you know it, at the end of the week, you look at your draw and, and you're paying out all this money. So we were making really crappy money despite the fact that we were selling records. We had a gold record off the first album. Right. And, and, and you start to go, wait a second, how come we're not making any money here? And then, then, so you get, you get this sort of, um, bit of a burnout going, why is my career not going as good as it could financially? And then the inner dynamics of the band started changing and there was a lot of internal strife. By the time we released Friction, that album is very aptly titled because there was a ton of friction in the band and we weren't getting along. It was like, I can only attribute it to a comparison when you marry someone and you're with that person the whole time or you got a friendship that sours or a girlfriend or a boyfriend that your relationship goes south with and and it just starts to sour so by the time 85 came around there was so much inner conflict with the band that we just all decided that's it hmm. so like this you know we weren't getting yeah. along then again you look at the timelines you're only talking a few years here like it was, it happens a very short yeah. period of time because they're riding you like a rented mule and you're doing all these things and you're supposed to be happy and upbeat and sharing the world and sharing musical joy with the world. And really you just got herded off a bus and you're trying to play the 50th show and, <laughs> and keep a <laughs> smile on your face. It's true. It's true. And you live with these people 24 seven and they start to, they, they, they're the little idiosyncrasies start to grate on you in there. And you know, the, the struggle of the egos of like, I want my song to be on this or how come, you know, right. they, and, and the, the record company and the managers going, well, maybe we didn't sell as many records because there's two singers. We should only have one singer and how come we're not, you know, so the politics start to get crazy. Right. Yeah. And, um, I can remember the longest drive that we did was like 42 hours. We drove direct from Albuquerque, New Mexico, back to Toronto to make a show, you know, two days later. And that really takes its toll on you, Dan, when you start doing that um, day in, day out. There was not a lot of time off. I can remember being really homesick a lot you know a lot of people don't recognize that, that you're you're like a, a traveling pirate gypsy when you're on the road. Jeffrey Kelly, perhaps best known as one of the principal founders of the iconic Canadian band Spirit of the West, but he's done much more than that. So we hope you enjoy this look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So you started studying and playing Irish music. So what is? How do you pronounce this? The Camultus? I don't uh, know. I'm going to try. Yeah, it's it's pronounced Cultus Cultori Aaron. It's Gaelic, basically, for the Irish Musician Society. Right. And back in the early '80s, they had. Uh, I don't, I, I'm sure they still do. They had branches all over the world. It's a way to get kind of expats together. And uh, they would teach the language, first of all. And then they would also uh, teach uh, Irish music and dancing. And there was a Kaylee kind of once a month or so. Right. And <clears throat> it was a great formative beginning for me in, 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 in that kind of music. And, and I just kind of got uh, swept away with it. Yeah, you would have you would have picked up on it right away. Well, that yeah. was the, the thing I thought was it is it unusual for a Scot to be playing Irish music, or is it the Celtic and the Gaelic uh, influence? That, yeah, it's, I think it's it's not that unusual. I think um, a lot of Irish musicians play 
Scottish music, and especially from the north of Ireland. Ireland, mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of the names in the north of Ireland are actually Scottish names, and same with parts of Scotland. Like my last name's Kelly, which is clearly Irish, and yeah. and my dad's partner in his company here was his last name was Stewart, yet he was Irish. So yeah, there there's, there's tons of crossover there. And so, it, yeah, it's, it's, it may seem a little funny, but it, it really, they're, they're, there's a lot of similarities between the two. The retro music is, is an exciting time back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I guess like thousands of other kids, you had stars in your eyes or you wanted to be a guy oh, in a yeah. band? I mean, at first not because I was more into collecting m- music and my parents got me my first stereo probably when I was about 16 or okay. 15 and so collecting was the the big thing. I remember getting Abbey Road and the first Santana album and the first nice. Chicago album, and and that really kicked yeah, it off. And love them all. Yeah, you know, and then it was just on, onward from there. And it's still for me as big a as important to me as it is playing music is collecting it. I I spend all my spare time on the road uh, when I'm in a in a different city. I'll figure out where the record shops are and I'll oh. make time to to go and hunt through the bins. And yeah, I love it. So how many records do you own then? Um, well, vinyl, I stopped collecting vinyl quite a long time ago. Basically, with the advent of CD, I, I thought, wow, this format is really durable. And although I'm, I can still fall into the romanticizing vinyl like a lot of people, <laughs> but I just don't collect it anymore. I probably have maybe 12,000 CDs. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty big, pretty big collection, yeah. which spans wow. a lot of different kinds of music, big, big folk collection. But yeah, I've got a, I've got a massive collection, and i just nice. adding to it, even though there's no more room, room in the house. <laughs> What was your defining moment? Like, when did you decide like, I might be able to make something out of this? I might be able to, was it planned out or just sort of happened? Well, there was a pivotal moment in 1979. I did that classic thing where I kind of sold up everything and I went to Europe for a year oh. with, with a friend of mine backpacking. And, and, you know, we bought a van, we bought a car in England and drove it all over England. Then we went over to the continent and bought a van in Amsterdam and, oh. and drove everywhere. And on that trip, We'd met in in England. We'd met this Austrian gal who said, "If you come to the continent, come and stay at my place." And we did. And one night, she took us to a folk club up in the mountains, a little village called Lienz. Hmm. And there was a guy there called Doogie McLean, with his partner at the time, Alan Roberts. They were a duo, and they were playing at this folk club. And I didn't know anything about them. I just thought, "Well, I guess we'll go because she wants to go." So we went along. And, and it just hit me like an arrow in the heart when they started playing it because they were Scottish. Hmm. And I hadn't really paid much attention. I was so enamored with, uh, you know, all the music of the day that I hadn't really thought about, you know, British Isles folk music until I heard these two guys. And by the end of the night, we had bought the album and we'd met Doogie and, and Alan wow. Roberts, his partner, and they were the nicest people. And that really was the turning point for me to make me think oh I, I can't believe how much that that hit me it really just grabbed my scottish roots and uh and i never really looked back from that point I, I became obsessed with that kind of music and we had a great record shop in vancouver at the time called black swan hmm. and it was a more of a folk jazz based record shop in kitsilano and i started going there and they had lots of uh great british traditional music and because they, I think they worked with the Folk Fest quite a bit. They would have the okay. record group at the Folk Fest. So they had a lot of great stuff. And then I was a volunteer at the Folk Fest. And that's when I started meeting some of these musicians from the UK. And that led to me meeting the people from the Irish Musician Society, which was where I started actually playing. Okay. So I didn't really play until I was about 23. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, the meeting Doogie McLean in Austria of all places was a, a huge turning point for me. In the folk world, there, there wasn't a lot of new stuff going on. I remember when I was a bit younger, I saw, I was camping on Vancouver Island with a friend. We drove by this pub and it was on the sign. It said, tonight, Figgy Duff from Newfoundland. And hmm. So we went to see them and, and it was superb. Like there's a folk rock band playing a little bar on Vancouver Island. I remember thinking, boy, that would be great to do a tour where you're playing these little places every day, a different spot. And, yeah. and it kind of became true. And, and Figgy Duff were one of the early influence, influences on me because they were kind of folk rock. We didn't have a drummer for a long time. And yeah. they had a great drummer, Noel. And uh, I, I just really loved them. And, and they were one of Canada's pioneering folk rock bands for sure. Oh, cool. So what was your plan when, when Spirit of the West started? Like, did you have a, a roadmap? in front of you or did you just think we're just going to play some tunes and see what happens yeah i think that the, the goal was to get to the point where we could actually quit our day jobs and take the mm-hmm. plunge and we started having some success down in seattle we went down to play the folk life festival we did really well there because we were younger we had lots of energy you know we weren't like a lot of the bands that had been around for a long time we we had a whole different approach and a lot of it was pure energy i wouldn't say we were very good but we jumped <laughs> around a lot well, John certainly had energy on stage. Oh, yeah. No doubt yeah, and, and he really jumped around a lot. And, and I, th- I just think it shook up the the, the the folk world, at least in the, in the Northwest here, a little bit, that we were these kind of young upstarts. And we really embraced that kind of thing. At the same time, we also loved our, all of our peers, like Valdi and Roy Forbes and yeah. you know all the, all the people who have been around a long time. We loved them too, but we just wanted to do something differently because we we had grown up more with rock and roll and, we didn't see why we couldn't couldn't be energetic and try to try different things. We were an indie an indie band before that word even existed. You know, we we made our own first record. We sold it out of the trunk of our car. Yeah. You know, and everybody, all our friends worked on the artwork, and we had a friend take the photographs. And yeah, I mean, we that's how, and, and it's common common nowadays. But back then, you know, it was it was a little unusual. And, well, yeah, I, I would agree with that because, uh, you know, nowadays, if you go to get a manager or whatever, they say, well, you got to have a certain status already before yeah, you even, yeah, you know. we, we were going way before we had any manager or agent yeah. and, and then, a lot of it was word of mouth. And the biggest break we got in the early days, we played this little festival in Vancouver called the Richard Street Festival. And I can't remember the fellow's name that ran it, but he was friends with the guy who was the artistic director of the Edmonton Folk Fest. And he was able to kind of put in a word for us because we did really well at the Richard Street Festival and he okay. got a hold of the fellow in Edmonton said hey you guys you got to check these these boys out and and the, the fellow in Edmonton took a took a shot on us and we played the main stage on the Friday night which was astonishing and we never looked back because everybody from all the other festivals attend all, all the folk fests and then they get ideas for for theirs for the next year next year right. so the following year we played them all yeah pretty much except for Vancouver oddly but we, we yeah. finally got that one too the genre, right? Like you're sort of Celtic and folk and maybe folk punk and pop. Yeah. It's, it's more than just Irish drinking songs. Did you have oh, an yeah. issue with, did yeah. you have an issue with the, being genre specific? Yeah, it probably helped and hurt us because, mm. you know, we couldn't really be easily pigeonholed. And, and eventually a really interesting thing happened where we became successful at universities and colleges mm. as well as folk, folk clubs and theaters. We were able to straddle both markets. We'd play like these huge gigs at the university in, in Edmonton where we'd play the, the Dinwiddie Lounge, which holds about a thousand people all standing. Totally rocked. And then we realized that we were in a very unique position, you know, because um, we, we were able to do both. 
We love the the real listening crowd of a folk audience and the sheer energy of young kids who are standing up and just rocking. Yeah, and those are totally different gigs. They were totally different. Yeah. But we, I mean, it, it it didn't last super long. There maybe three years of that. Yeah, it's hard to keep your your place in the, the fickle world of, of, of pop music. And we stayed really strong in the folk world, but um, the the pop world, you know, the next big thing is coming along, and you start to see your your, your toehold kind of slipping a yeah. little bit. But for quite a few years, we did really well at the universities. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.